as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi there, welcome to this week's episode of Speak Up. I'm Annika Flynn, paediatric speech pathologist. Today, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Charlinda Parsons, paediatric occupational therapist from Ready, Set, Grow OT. Charlinda has over 20 years of clinical experience across a range of paediatric settings and is a guru on all things fine motor, sensory integration and emotional regulation. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Charlinda. Thanks. It's, it's so lovely to be with you guys. Charlinda has kindly agreed to engage in a bit of a Q&A today. As paediatric speech pathologists, we see our clients for such a short period of time in each session. I know I really like to make every second of that time count, not only to target speech and language goals, but also to target wider developmental needs if I can. So Charlinda is here to help us paediatric speeches incidentally consider and include some occupational therapy needs in our sessions. Are you good to go, Charlinda? I have a truckload of questions for you. I absolutely am. Um, can I just say, Annika, it's it's so lovely to be working alongside Speechies. Um, I value the what Speechies bring to many of my clients and so good just to be able to, um, I guess, share a little bit of what, as OTs, what we love to do. And I wish that I could, we could do the same with you guys in the OT field. Okay, here's our first question. What should we be considering to regulate a child before we even attempt launching into our speech and language goals with them? So um, where I would start with that is really, as OTs, we see regulation as the foundation. It's the, the, the place that we will always start in a session. Um, and the reason why we, we do that is because if a child is not regulated, they're thinking about what their body's doing. They're thinking about sit still, sit still, sit still, concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. And they're actually then not available to learn. They're actually not available to be able to um, engage with what you're trying to present. And for many of our kids, speech and language is really, really hard. They've got to think about what their bodies are doing and they've got to think about, um, use a whole lot of cognitive processes. And so if we, if we regulate them before um, we try and do those things, we're really setting them up to, to succeed. Um, and what I would say with that is in terms of, of well, how do we regulate them, Looking at, at um, many of our kids need what we call heavy work or real proprioceptive input. Um, and so if you Google heavy work, <laughs> there is a plethora of um, any OT that's ever blogged has written a, a list of, of heavy work tasks. Looking through some of those and going, what can I do? What fits within my clinic? What fits within the space I have? And even the equipment I have. Um, but I would really encourage you, if you can regulate a child, and, and I should say that regulation for a child, each child looks different. Just like how you, uh, the, where your happy place or your calm space may look very different to what my calm space looks like. Um, so it's about finding that balance for a child um, so that 
then they're able to go, okay, now I can put my effort into the tasks mm. that you've got for me. So we should have some ideas. Are we talking yeah. moving big, heavy books from one side of the room to the other before we sit down at the table? What sort of um, specific things could you suggest? Yeah, absolutely. So things like carrying something heavy is great. Um, simple things like wheelbarrow walking or animal walking around the room. Um, I know often speeches have small little rooms. Mm. They're not, <laughs> the OTs tend to take the big ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and I know that that then makes it a little bit trickier. But you can do things like wall push-ups where you're pushing against the wall with some resistance. Um, you can um, even just sometimes I'll have my big therapy ball and even just having the child on the other side of the ball and you're pushing against each other, trying to kind of push the other person to the other end of the room. Um, so they're all kind of little things that you can do within. And, and some of those regulation tasks you might have to do halfway through your session as well. So that when you see the child getting a little bit niggly, I'm not too, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my, um, I guess my, my regulated space. It might be, okay, we're going to have a movement break. Um, my, one of my favorite little things to do is I have one of those cubes with a whiteboard cube. So it's got like a little whiteboard on each corner and then you can draw on it with a whiteboard marker. I'll often use that as a regulation tool where we might put on, so you've got six options whether it's animal walks or different things that you might do with your body. And I guess the lovely thing about that is you can build some speech and language into that as well. Go over, go under, or can you be a particular animal? Um, and then it's, it's also a bit of fun because you get to roll the ball and at dice and then what am I going to be? Um, so I guess nice things like that where there's, and I reckon some of you guys might even have them in your little clinic, in your little stash of, of tools um, though you can, you can absolutely use that in that regulation space as well as what you, how you would might use it in, in your speech and language space. For sure. Now tell, talk to me about fidget toys. Yep. Do fidget toys fit into this regulation space at all? They seem to go through phases of being incredibly popular. Um, I know the little poppets seem to be very popular at the moment. Are they something we could be considering in this regulation space? Yeah, absolutely. But before, uh, what I might say before that is often I think people think fidget, to I'll just give you a fidget toy and everything will be fine. And the reality is, particularly for many of the kids we work with, it's not enough. So just a fidget, just to give a child a fidget toy on their own is not going to be enough to get them regulated. They need the heavy work. They need that big movement stuff first and then a fidget toy to help them stay in that space. Um, and again, each of us are different. Each of us have our own preferences. What I would um, what I would say is or or recommend is get yourself a little box of fidget toys and and I'm not talking the big ones you know the big hairy ones with lots of um, that are you know as big as your as big as your arm they're they're just distracting um, little one little things so that could be pipe cleaners it could be elastic bands it could be um, the two dollar shop have lots of lovely little things to fidget and play with otherwise. Um, there's a few, lots of sensory shops that a little bit of therapy or... Yeah, therapy. I was going to say, is popular in my room. Absolutely. Um, put them in a little box and, and keep them in your room as a, um, a go-to. But if you can keep it as, a spa, as something that is available all the time, the novelty wears off. So if it's something that's a special treat, then um, at, when it comes out, kids get excited and it's, oh, 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 oh we'll get to play with this and they get distracted by it. 
Whereas if it's just a something that's there and it's just a matter of fact, oh, do you need something to fidget with? Um, it, it just becomes a, um, the novelty of it, of the something new wears off and you'll soon know which child needs it because the child who needs it will go back to it. The child who had the, the whole novelty thing going on will go, oh no, don't need that. Don't want that today. Um, so it, I guess it's just taking away the, the demystifying, if that's the right word, or, or bringing it back to just being a regular part of it's just there. But certainly, you know, keep it small. Um, and my, my, my rule is if it's distracting you from thinking, it's, it's meant to help you think about what we're talking about. If it's distracting you from that, then it's not doing its job. For sure. All right. Can I move you to pencils and texters and crayons and other writing implements? (laughs) So every speech pathologist's clinic room has, I know in my room, I've got some little buckets. We have writing implements that we use for writing, but also for colouring, for drawing, etc. Is there anything we should be considering when we're choosing those sort of things that might also kind of incidentally support fine motor skills at the same time? Absolutely. Um, I, so I would probably break, break your age groups into kind of your preschoolers and your primary school kids. Um, so with your preschoolers, uh, if you can have um, like sort of either sometimes broken crayons, I don't know, oh, don't break my crayons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if that really doesn't sit well with your broken crayons, breaking your crayons in half, um, you can get some lovely um, rock crayons. Which, but so basically, what they are is they're they're a small crayon that you're able to hold on to with those three um, pencil grip fingers, um, and it it helps the child to actually develop a really good pencil grip, um, and it means that you don't have a child grabbing a pencil in preschool with a fist or with what I call the weird and wonderful grips, mm-hmm. um, and so you're actually not reinforcing something that's that's not functional. So um, with those preschoolers, if you're doing drawing, consider doing it in, in standing at an easel or on the wall, not on the wall, but piece of paper on the wall. So what you're doing there is you're actually just reinforcing some lovely developmental progression and um, in terms of their, hand, their, their pencil development. With your primary school kids, I would, um, I would say consider getting triangular um, and not fat, fat, but sort of the fatter triangular pencils um again they they just give a really nice um support to um developing a really good grip um i find that the the thin pencils our kids really struggle to get particularly our kids who are a little bit clumsy or have some you know significant fine motor issues they really struggle to get their fingers around that um your kids who who don't have massive fine motor issues then they're not going to care if they're using fatter or thinner pencils Mm -hmm. yeah what about those pencils with the little bubbly bits on the side? <laughs> I've seen oh, those around. Do yes. they, are they helpful or are they not helpful? Um, I do like them. I, I, I guess they give a little, they give more proprioceptive feedback to the hands. So when you're holding on them, they just kind of give you, oh, there's my hand. That's where it is. Mm-hmm. Look, my all-time favourite pencil, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, are, there's a brand called Lyra and they have these pencils that have holes, like little cut-out holes in them, like so it, it gives you, when you hold it, it actually gives you a, oh, that's where my fingers need to go. So um, then they're, so they're just kind of shaved. Mm, indents. Indents. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, holding on to those, that, so that they would be my number one go-to pencil, but totally get that 
you know, for, for some species that might not be something that they can necessarily access or are wanting to spend the money on because they are a bit more expensive than your kind of Officeworks um, pencils. But yeah, so the the ones with little, with little um, dots on them are also fantastic for just giving that, that feedback. Yeah, so I guess I would say um, a triangular pencil at a minimum and then you've kind of got your steps up of um, the, the dots and then sort of something like the Lyra, which has got the indents in it. Mm. So things to yeah. consider, though, isn't it? Absolutely. That we can just go and buy a cheap packet of pencils, but if we really want to be incidentally supporting some of these other skills, being a bit more thoughtful about what we choose can be really helpful. Absolutely. And if you're buying pencils, like if you're ready to buy new pencils because all of them are broken or um, that's, you know, look at buying those ones that are going to be, like you said, helping out. Mm. All right. What about pencil grips and pen grips i know you can go down to officeworks our favorite stationery supplier (laughs) and you can buy some pretty standard sort of pen and pencil grips there are they useful or are they not really useful do they need to be more specific to the child yes yes is probably the short answer um i'm not a fan of just putting pencil grips on as standard for kids um, I, there are so many different pencil grips around and really when you're looking at selecting a pencil grip, it's, it's about matching the pencil grip to the child's needs and, and how they're holding the pencil. Um, I feel like I sometimes get children in kind of that later primary who have some interesting pencil grips and they had, they were given a pencil grip by a teacher or someone in the early years and what it's actually done is then ended up, the child's ended up holding, because they've, they're missing the underlying um, hand strength or coordination in their hands, they've ended up holding the pencil in an awkward way because that's the only way that they've worked out how to control the movement of the pencil. So what I would say, as if, if you want to have a rule around it, <laughs> um, if the child comes with a pencil grip that's been prescribed by an OT, absolutely, if you know, use it or, or um, if the child might say, oh yeah, I've got this pencil grip at, at in OT or at school. Great. Use it. If the child doesn't have a pencil grip and you, but you go, oh, that's an interesting pencil grip or I can't get this child to hold the pencil. Um, I would, I would say refer to OT because we can do, you know, and that's not a, a, a referral for life. That's just a, can you look at the pencil grip and give us some advice on how to hold on, whether how to reinforce it or how to, um, is this the pe- best grip for this child? I, I think the tricky thing with grips is that, you know, it, get, it goes on their writing pencil, but then the kids often in prep grade one, there's lots of colouring in, there's lots of um, other, using other implements to write or draw with. And so the kids get kind of mixed messages because they get a grip on their pencil, but then there's no grip when I'm colouring in. Um, so... Yeah, my preference is always to try and establish a grip without a pencil grip, if I can, because that's going to really help out our kids um, across all different parts of drawing and, and tool use, rather than just in their writing. But look, there are some kids where we do give them a pencil grip um, because we can't we can't get that. Mm. Um, and what about pens? I always, in my mind, I know 
uh, I guess in recent times there was always this pen license kind of situation oh. <laughs> that the kid, yeah, that the kids um, achieved at certain, like roughly about grade four, I think it was three or four. Um, I don't know if that's around quite so much anymore, but I always know that in my sessions, I'm not quite sure, depending on the age of the child I'm working with, and if we are doing something in written language, whether to offer them a pen or to offer them a gray lead. Is there anything I should be looking out for that might help me decide? It's, it, yeah, absolutely. It, it's a really tricky one, those pen licences. And yet they are still absolutely around. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what I would say is it, certainly I will often, if, if they're under grade four, pencil all the way, because that's what they're using in um, in the classroom. And, and, and I tend to actually not even like them using textures. And that's probably just a personal preference on my part. Um, I feel like pencils, pe- sorry, textures don't give very good feedback to their, what their hands are doing. So they're not having to, um, it just makes it, it harder in terms of their learning of what, of, of motor memory because the pen, the pen, the textures just slide. Sorry, but I'm going on a tangent there. Um, <laughs> over, over grade four, sometimes it depends on the child. Sometimes I might give them a choice, um, but it also depends on what I'm doing with them. So if it's a written task and I'm going to be correcting, I'm working on, on handwriting and correcting letter formation. And I guess from a speechy perspective, if you're looking at correcting spelling as you go, then I would, I would probably just say in speech, we're going to use pencils um, because you can rub it out to, to fix it. Um, and for those kids who have messy handwriting or, um, are just struggling with that kind of um, controlling of the pencil, my preference would be a pencil rather than a pen because pens don't forgive um, at all. And look, there are some kids where, for a, from an OT perspective, where the pen licence is, it's the thing to work towards and that is their goal, is I want my pen licence like everybody else. And these kids are often very aware that their handwriting is messy and that it's almost like I, I might not get my pen license with those kids. I will often try and negotiate with school um, because in my mind, I feel like these kids are working towards good handwriting, but why are we punishing them and making them stand out even more because they don't have the, the, the neatest of handwriting like the other kids in the classroom. Um, so I would look at the erasable pens. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> they're great. Oh, I love them. I love using them. Um, and for some of those kids, that then enables them to use a um, get a pen license, but also the erasable part means that they're not necessarily going to have, they can fix up the, the errors that they make. All right, let's move on to something different. Now, speeches, as I'm sure you know, Shalinda, we love our motivational token reinforcement games. Yeah. Um, we use them consistently to support our speech and language goals. And they add, obviously, a heap of fun to our sessions too, of course. Um, are there any games, though, that you could suggest that might also incidentally support fine motor skills? So when I was thinking about this question, I I was like, oh, I wish you could come and look in my OT cupboard um, <laughs> because I, I do love a good kind of, you know, finding um, fine motor games that work towards um, specific skill development. I guess my my take from, from thinking about that was um, anytime you can incorporate a game that has like pegs, so pegging or using some tongs, 
um, or posting something like coins or like I think there are a couple of speechy games often that you guys will use where you might say words and then you post it into like a post box or a coin, mm-hmm, yep. like a money box. Any of those things are working on some really nice fine motor skills um, and, and again reinforcing, particularly for our preschoolers, that underlying um, pencil pre-writing skills and pre-tool use. Um, there's a couple of, of really nice um, the um, squeeze popper. So it's a it's like a ball and it goes into like a pig or a different animal and you squeeze the belly of it and then the ball flies out. Um, oh yes, those poppers. Those poppers yes, is that what... I've got a few of those in my collection. Yes. Yep. Um, again, they're a really nice hand strengthening tool. Um, you could just make your own hand strengthening, um, like you know the old tennis ball that's been cut in the middle with the mouth and you squeeze the mouth and you post something in. So something like that even has again nice hand strengthening and posting. Um, task um i had an an aide the other day i wish i could take credit for this but i can't um (laughs) who showed me i love loved it the you know the new um fidgets or the 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 latest craze the um the push pop things the poppets yeah so she had those and she had the this child pushing down with her with their index finger like pushing so isolating their finger and pushing through each of the poppets and then she had pom-poms and she had him using tongs to put pom-poms in each of the holes. Oh, that's such a great idea. I was like, I'm stealing that. Um, <laughs> I will be using that. But, you know, something as simple as that and in, in terms of being able to work on that, yeah, the, the pincer grip and, um, and even the finger isolation, but then also being able to, I guess, the, reinforce the, well, you know, we've done this or, yeah. Mm, absolutely mm. awesome okay what about w sitting oh. i often whenever i'm doing a floor activity i would oh there's so many little ones that will sit down on the floor with me and w sit and i'm always in two minds because i'm just not sure whether i correct them let yep. them go and i'm really curious to know your thoughts oh w sitting is is one of those things yeah i often will go into kinders and look around the room and just go, yep, W, W, W. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of kids that use W sitting. <laughs> yeah. So I guess let's think about what the underlying reason for the W sitting is. So often um, that's it's a more stable position. So for our kids who lack a bit of core strength, might be a little bit low tone, um, They when you W sit, you, you actually have a, a much a bigger base of support and therefore it's a lot easier to sit and your mus- your core muscles don't have to work as hard. Um, so there's, there's mixed opinion on W sitting. So certainly our kids who have, who are low tone or have kind of your CP presentation, we want to get them out of W sitting. Um, it's not great for hip development. Um, it's not great even for core development. Um, but most of our kids will move in and out of W sitting, um, on their own. In saying that my, what I would say is if you if you notice it, prompt them to sit with their in a different position. So whether that's cross-legged, because once they get to school and kinder, that's the expectation that you double, that you sit with your legs crossed. If they can't get that um legs crossed position, then you'd be wanting to do something like um side sitting or legs out the front. Um and and but being aware that when um, those children are not going to be able to maintain that position 
cross-legged for a long period of time. So um, they're going to, when they're, when they're cross-legged, um, you may well see that they'll kind of get that C shape. So they're back, which, and that's really just indicative of their core not working properly. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling to keep their body upright. Um, so, um, and, and that you might see fatigue just where, you know, and that might be the time where they start rolling around on the floor um, <laughs> or kind of moving around, uh, getting wriggly in, in that position. So what I would encourage um, speeches to do is, so maybe reduce that time on the floor if you see that they're struggling with that and maybe look at different positioning. So could we do it in standing? Could we do it at the table um, using a, a range of postures rather than just on the floor? And I know that's tricky, particularly if you're doing play-based stuff. Um, and often these kids will get into, you know, I'm playing and I'm, I'm creating and I'm in the W position and I'm not even thinking about how I'm sitting because I'm making this, um, this tower and the man's going to jump out of the tower. So, you know, working, working out when do I kind of go, all right, let's change your position or, or can I somehow move that position to the tower's taking off and then we're standing up and so we're moving out of that W in a, in a less kind of can you move way. Obvious way, yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. What about, uh, I know that in a lot of speech pathology clinic rooms, we get allocated a table and some chairs and they often don't change in size. And we have little kids that come in and the table and chairs are just too big and their feet don't touch the floor. And then we have big kids that come in and they can't get their legs under the table. Would you have any suggestions about any of that? (laughs) (laughs) That, It's so tricky, isn't it? I know I often go to schools and, um, Again, you get allocated a room and I walk in and just go, oh, <laughs> particularly for our little ones where we got dangling feet um, or the chairs don't match the size of the table and you've kind of got kids sitting with their elbows up around their heads. Um, so let's start with the small kids, small kids on big ta- in big in big tables. Um, if you can get, I, I will often look around the room and find some books um, or something or a tub that I can slide in under their feet. Um, it, particularly if you're an IT, a, a, a kind of itinerant or moving around speechy, it's hard to carry a block, you know, to, to kind of go, oh, here, I've got a block for your feet. Um, if, you're, if you've got your own clinic room or space, that's a little bit easier to be able to go, well, I'll just have a block and I can put it under. Um, the old phone books work really well, but I don't think we get them anymore. I know, we don't get them. <laughs> they were great. They served so much bit of contact over the top of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so certainly with those small kids, I think they're easier to manage and to, to help with getting them, them higher. Um, if you've got the ability to, if you've got your own clinic, but you don't want to buy, you know, a range of furniture, um, what we do at our clinic is we have a trip trap chair, trip trap chair, um, <laughs> tongue twister. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and which is because it's adjustable and it goes to children up. I think it's 10 to 11 age group. Um, so we have an adult table. So we will sit in an adult chair, but the child comes up to the table in the trip trap and they're at the height of the table with us, um, which works a treat. And also from an oh perspective for our backs as the therapists, we're not sitting on these low chairs and tables all day. Um, so that, I mean, that's perfect. That's perfect world. Um <laughs> And I totally get that many people go, yeah, that's great, but trip traps are expensive. You can get, there are some cheaper versions as well. Um, 
But yeah, other if you can't do that, something like so I guess that the biggest key is getting something under their feet so that their feet are supported. Um, if you if you've got a chance, if you're listening to this and you have a chance and you're sitting at a table, lift your feet off the ground and try and write a sentence, or try and do something, try and thread a needle with a um a piece of cotton. It's really hard to do, and that's what many of our kids are trying to do when their feet are dangling. And we're asking them to do something fine motor wise um, at, at a table. Okay, so for our big kids, that's really tricky because, you know, um, and, and you're right, when you're doing something like handwriting and they can't get their legs under the table. I know I often sit at some of these little tables with my legs to the side and I'm twisted and um, <laughs> it's not great. Um, I would say consider some different different positions. So for some of these bigger kids, can you put them on the floor? Can you go do it on your tummy on the floor? Could you do it in standing um, and yeah, um, on the, like put some butcher's paper on the wall and do some writing on the wall. Um, the other, your, your other option with some of those tables is whether you put some chocks under the, 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 um, the legs. That's a big, big task though to do. And you've got to then come take them in and out. Um, or consider um, uh, one of those height adjustable tables. So, yeah, harder for the big kids. Yeah, I yeah, think. for sure. Um, but lots of logistics to consider, though. Sometimes these are things that we just kind of accept, and I think we need to be just a bit more thoughtful in how we consider consider them. <laughs> absolutely. And I guess even what am I asking you to do while you're sitting at the table um, and just being mindful of the you know, and is it that you, you actually move from the table to just even sitting without something between, like it without a table? And that's hard because often we, we need the table for putting out things that we're working on. Um, yeah. Now, everything that we've chatted about today does not replace an actual referral to an OT if this is warranted. And that's a big disclaimer from everything that we've chatted about. Absolutely. So I guess um, this is probably a conversation in itself about what are some <laughs> of the referral indicators, but maybe broadly, what, what are some of the things that we should be looking out for that would indicate that we really do need to make a referral to an occupational therapist? Um, certainly, you're right. Um, a lot of these, these things are kind of, I guess, general in nature, the, the things that I've, um, I've talked about and a referral to OT is always going to be, um, worthwhile in terms of when you're not sure or when you're like, well, I tried a couple of these things and it didn't work. Um, and it it doesn't like a lot of our kids already have an OT, so it doesn't necessarily mean a referral to an OT. It might be just a conversation with an OT, with the child's OT. I'm doing handwriting. How do I get the child to hold? Or what are the prompts that you use to get the child to hold the pencil? Um, my child, the, the child is so dysregulated in my session. Can you give me some cool, what, what, what works for you? So in terms of what's the, what are the indicators for referral? Um, pencil grip. If you've got a child coming in and with uh, what I would call a weird and wonderful grip, <laughs> um, and, and those are really anything that's not that doesn't look somewhat typical so um your tripod is your typical grasp um you might have four fingers around the pencil which is a um a quadruped which is is fine um you might have a finger wrapped around the front um your thumb wrapped around the front of the pencil it's kind of borderline (laughs) um but if you've got kind of child holding the pencil with index finger at the top of the pencil and um and thumb and then all the fingers on the shaft of the pencil 
that's an absolute referral to OT. If you've got a fisted grip, please send them our way. Um, any of those grips that we would call them non-functional and long-term, it, it's so much easier to correct a grip when they're in preschool or the early years of primary school. If you send them to, send them to us at 10 or 11, it's so much harder um, and it's going to affect their handwriting and their ability to, um, I guess, achieve their um, all that, that they can achieve in their higher years of schooling if they've got a dysfunctional pencil grip. Um, if you've got a child who's just totally dysregulated, so, you know, they're jumping around the room the whole time and you're like, we get nothing done. Nothing happens because I'm spending my whole time saying, come sit down, come sit down, come back. Um, that's an absolute referral to OT because we will look at what are the heavy work tasks and, and more specifically than what than just give them heavy work tasks. We will look at it from a full sensory processing perspective. Um, and that leads me to, if you've got a child with sensitive, sensory sensitivities, um, the child who, um, who gets very emotional or very upset over little, well, I shouldn't say little, over specific um, touch or noise um, input. And look, I know that most, a lot of your, your speeches listening to this would be knowing this stuff anyway. Um, yeah, I, I guess, and the only other two, or not the only other two, but two other areas, handwriting, if you've got really poor or illegible handwriting or poor formation, um, again, earlier the better to send kids across. And if you've got a kid who's just clumsy, you know, um, they walk, they trip, they seem to trip over their own feet or they're having trouble with planning out how to do things. That's kind of that motor planning praxis space. Um, that's, it, that's a really good referral to OT because we can look at it from what else is going on for this child. Um, yeah. Awesome. And I think you're right. Let's have conversations. Many of the kids that we work with have speech pathologists and occupational therapists, particularly in the NDIS landscape that we find ourselves in now. Let's chat. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's have these conversations and work out as speeches how we can run our sessions a little bit better for our little ones by touching base with that OT and, and, um, and vice versa, because we're all on the same page and working towards the same goals for these yes. little ones. A absolutely. You are an absolute genius. I just, I love your creativity. I love your practicality. Um, and oh, your tips are just amazing. I can't thank you enough today, Shalinda. It's really, really, really been amazing. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.